Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Season 3, Episode 4. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white dudes. No, no, no. Oh, no. There are many well-documented... <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. We have almost 50 episodes. <laughs> there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is fruitloopspod and our discussion group is fruitloopspod discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at fruitloopspod. And if you're not on Facebook, you can join the discussion on Twitter or Instagram by using the hashtag FruitLoopsPodDiscussion. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone, or you can find online at cash.me forward slash FruitLoopsPod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. And we also have some merch for sale on our website at FruitLoopsPod.com forward slash merch. And if you can't help the show monetarily, no problem. No problem, man. 
You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And this is important. Be sure to share our show with your friends. Yeah. So, Miss Beth, who are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Martin Kipp, a Native American man who murdered two women. Ah, so uh, before we dive into the juicy stuff, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, not a whole lot to report. Just been trying to catch up on uh, Veronica Mars. Um, I don't know if you watched that show or ever watched it. I do not, but I have heard great things, mostly from you. <laughs> Resident nerd in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they released a, a new season, which, um, you know, it's been years and years and years since they've done... Uh, season of it so um oh. i had watched it a while back and so i'm trying to go through it again because i forgot a lot so i can watch mm -hmm. the new season and that's with one of my favorite white ladies uh kristen bell yeah yeah kristen bell yeah <laughs> yeah. <she's really> funny. <laughs> yeah agreed um well wonderful uh i'll add it to my list of things to do catch up on veronica <laughs> mars is it on netflix uh, it's on Hulu. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm going to have to bootleg it. Um, <laughs> or use my mom's password. <laughs> you know how we, we millennials do. You know how we do. Uh, <laughs> so how are you doing? Good. Thanks for asking. Uh, just got back from vacation. I actually just pulled into my driveway two hours ago. Um, the car wow. is not unloaded yet. Uh, but we had so much fun. We went to... Um, Minnesota, that was our destination, Minneapolis, um, to hang out with my brother and my husband's brother and his kids. Uh, boy, uh, <laughs> the trip back was challenging. Um, we had some uh, setbacks in Colorado on the way there and on the way back. Like my daughter, um, when we were in the hotel room in Colorado, was throwing up all night. Um, oh, no. From this trash ass Mexican restaurant. I can't even remember oh, the name, no. but we were like, can we get some pico de gallo? And they brought it in a ketchup bottle. Oh, my God. Have you seen pico de gallo made in such a fashion? No. That should have been our first clue. And we should have left right then and there. But we were like, yeah. okay. And, and have you ever been to a Mexican restaurant where you have to put salt on the food? What? So we had to put, that's how bad it was. And then, okay. Oh and then on God. the way back in Colorado, again, we were going to spend the night there. And we um, were on our way to a hotel. And we got a ticket. We got pulled over by the police. Oh, and I'm, like, man. terrified. You know how I feel about cops. Oh, yeah. Shoot black people left and right. <laughs> and so I was like handing him the insurance paper. Like my, my hands were like shaking. Like shaking. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, the insurance paper. <laughs> I, I, and, and my kids were in the back and my son was. Ha I guess I haven't conveyed the lesson. Like you have to also shut the hell up around police because he was like, mommy, are those police going to shoot us? <laughs> and I was like, oh my shut God. up. I don't know. <laughs> and, shut and up. My husband, I don't know. <laughs> my, husband, my husband was driving and my husband is not afraid of police. Like he always mouths off to police. I was like, please don't do that with our kids in the car. Please just shut up. And uh, my husband wasn't speeding. They pulled us over, I think, because we were in Colorado and Arizona cars don't have front license plates and we didn't have a front license plate. Right. So he's like looking around right. at the car for something to give us a ticket for. And my son, the seatbelt rubs his neck. So he moved it behind his back and we didn't notice. And, yeah. you know, we always talk about you got to wear your seatbelt properly. And But it was a long car drive and he had it moved. And we didn't think to like check before the policeman came to the car. So we got a ticket for two 
seatbelt infractions. Oh which my god! It could have been a lot worse, right? But, but uh, <laughs> still, geez, he couldn't let you go with just a warning. Yeah, I know. <sighs> so anyway, so we were like, we're not staying in Colorado any further. We're gonna drive all night to the next state, so we don't have wow. to stay in Colorado. No, I know Colorado is a lovely state. That was our first two experiences with it, and. Um, I'm just going to (laughs) say it wasn't great for us. So anyway, we're glad to be back in Phoenix. We had a fun time in the Midwest. Thanks Midwest. You guys are dope. (laughs) So, uh, now, (laughs) now we are going to dive into our mailbag. We do like to shout out our listeners. And when they say, um, they reach out to us and communicate with us, we just want to say thank you. So let me, let me reach, reach for our mailbag here. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So what's the first listener letter back? Well, we got an email from Shannon, and uh, she said, please remember we need to emphasize these women who are discarded and not contribute to the infamy of these narcissistic psychopaths. And then keep up the good work. I'm a white lady who's getting an education, a new perspective, and I feel a kinship with you awesome women. So thank mm. you, Shannon. Yes, Shannon. We do try to remember the uh, the victims. We try to uh, say mm-hmm. their names because they are important. And mm-hmm. uh, we do try to get some information about them. And um, a lot of what we do is trying to figure out why these guys did these things. Not We don't... Th- you know, we don't want to uh, glorify them or anything like that. We're trying to figure no, out no. why did they do these things? Yeah. Right. And context and is everything, right? Like our our experiences shape who we are. And one thing that's not generally talked about is how race plays into a person's experience or upbringing. And so that's right. the thing that we try to get into when we're talking about the setting, what, you know, the, the, the time and place, um, the person's the upbringing. And- the history and, and all the other podcasts who talk about true crime never mention this person happened to be a person of color and how difficult that could have been um, in the context of their existence. And I think that that's important for the victims to keep in mind about and also the um, perps. So that's why we yeah. talk about all that stuff. Yep. But thank you, Shannon. Thanks for the email. And, yeah. and anybody else have any comments uh, to make? Uh, go ahead and give us an email. Yeah, you know where to find us. Yep. Um, And keep them coming because we love them. We do. Um, I was going to share an email from Brother Chris. <laughs> That's And I say Brother Chris because when me and my husband went to a black church, all the he's white and everybody was like brother chris <laughs> yes, and so that's anyway <laughs> if you have seen the name chris i'm like brother chris so anyways brother chris sent us an email and he said i really enjoy your podcast at first i didn't because i couldn't see how humor and witty satire could coexist with these stories if you guys are looking for another great podcast to listen to check out white lies he said thanks he says and uh signed it off with Chris and to Chris we'd like to give you all of the hip hop air horns because we appreciate your email and your kind words. <laughs> now, I wanted to say also, he's absolutely right about that podcast White Lies. It is outstanding. It's by these um journalists. Th- these two white guys, they're from both from the south. Um it's about the unsolved murder of a white clergyman. He was killed by the KKK. Um, and at the time, it was in the 60s, uh, during the civil rights movement, and Martin Luther King called out 
all of the clergy across America to help Black Americans in their fight for civil rights. Um, and so these, uh, it was three white clergymen who went down to the South together. Um, and they all got attacked by the KKK. Um, they were beaten in the middle of the street. And one of them oh, wow. ended up dying. Um, and everybody knew who did it. But nobody in the town wanted to talk about it because they were so right. afraid of what the Klan might do to them. So now um, everybody who's in, almost everybody who was involved in this story in the 60s is dead. And so the journalists had to go and interview, you know, spouses of people and people with Alzheimer's who didn't quite remember the story and right. um, children of the people involved and did some deep investigating and found out who committed the murder and took wow. that evidence to the um, district attorney. Um, who unfortunately can't do anything because the dude's dead and I guess the statute of limitations has passed. So anyway, yeah. it is really, really fascinating to hear these interviews, the information they uncovered. So thank you, Chris. Um, and I, I hope that the listeners also appreciate your recommendation. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get back to the story when we come back. We would like to invite any listeners who have a business to advertise to do it with us. For more information, please email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com or check out our website at fruitloopspod.com. All right. So um, now we're back. And tell us again, Beth, who are we talking about? Today, we're going to be talking about Martin Kipp, a Native American man and serial rapist and murderer who killed two women in the Los Angeles, California area. So now we're going to get into the stats, which is my favorite part of the story. Um, and uh, I like to do a little hip hop air horns just because it's my favorite part of the story. So, <laughs> okay. uh, so Martin James Kip, a.k.a. Dr. Crazy, still not sure how he got that nickname. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from because there's nothing in anywhere that says why he was called Dr. Crazy, but it's, it's in yeah. a couple of places. Yeah. But no explanation, none whatsoever. Not, well, not a one, not, <laughs> not a, a one, one. <laughs> but he's a, he's a, he's a first peoples or indigenous or native American person, but uh, <clears throat> welcome to culture corner with Wendy and Beth. Now um, what to call native Americans is um, I think it's, it's changed. It's, it's evolving. Um, as we become better, smarter um, humans. Uh, indigenous peoples or Native Americans are not a monolith. Um, there are indigenous people all over the world. Um, we're referring in this story to those across the Americas. So North, North America, that includes Canada, Central and South America. The conversation about how to refer to them, though, as people varies from region to region. And I recently learned that uh, indigenous or first peoples is, is a term that is preferred um, by American, uh, or at least the ones who have conveyed their position on, on the um, outlets that I read and listen to, that ter those terms are preferred. So that's what I try to use out of respect. And if you're listening to this and you um, feel a different way or um, know of a different sentiment, please let us know because I want to be as um, respectful as possible. But yeah. hip rape and murdered two women. I believe he also raped two additional women who escaped. So four rapes, two murders. His murder victims were Tiffany Frizzell and uh, Antaya Howard in the Los Angeles area in California in 1983 and 1984 was when the crimes occurred. His MO was rape and strangulation, and he was sentenced to death in 1987. 
Um, but before we dive into the gory details of the story, let's talk about the setting and the killer's early life because it's very important to the person that Kip developed into. So yeah. take it away, Beth. Martin Kip is a full-blooded Blackfoot from the Blackfeet Reservation. Blackfeet territory once ranged from southern Canada through Montana. Montana. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of this place. Montana. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> through Montana to what is now Yellowstone National Park. They were a nomadic warrior tribe that vigorously broadened their territory by pushing other tribes out. By the early 1800s, they were doing battle with most tribes who ventured into the northern Great Plains. It's estimated that their numbers at the time exceeded 15,000. Wow. Yeah. Um, hefty population. Yeah. Um, the Blackfeet traded for horses with the Spanish in what is now New Mexico. Wait a minute. There's a New Mexico. Just kidding. I was there today. Um, <laughs> it was part of my road trip. And uh, they traded furs with the British in Canada. Their first contact with Americans occurred in 1805 or 1806 when they met members of the Lewis and Clark Survey Expedition. Later, the Americans aligned with the Crow tribe, enemies of the Blackfeet, while the Blackfeet were aligned with the British. At the time the Lewis and Clark Expedition moved up the Missouri, the Blackfeet had control of nearly all the Montana terrain the explorers wandered through. Except for one incident, their encounters with the explorers were peaceful. Around 1832, the Americans took over the fur trade and the Blackfeet's contact with Canada dwindled. So then 1855, the U.S. government and the Blackfeet signed a treaty that gave the Blackfeet much of Montana east of the northern Rocky Mountains. But as was the case with all other tribes in Montana, these lands were quickly whittled down by the deception by the U.S. government with a gradually shrinking territory, loss of the fur trade and the disappearance of the bison. The Blackfeet became impoverished and they became impoverished because it was the United States intention to get them into debt. We're yeah. going to get these these brown people that we've been trying to get out for forever so we can take over all this land. We're going to make them get into debt and owe us. And then they're going to be uh, powerless. They're not going to have any choices. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Then discovery of gold in Montana in 1862 resulted in an invasion of and encroachments on the Blackfeet's treaty lands. The Blackfeet resisted, but their resistance largely ended in December 1869 when a group of soldiers attacked and massacred a peaceful encampment of Blackfeet under Chief Heavy Runner. This is known as the Massacre on the Marias River. I also wanted to interject here and say... Um, so the 1860s um, is probably about when um, uh, things, not when things started to change, but when you drive around the United States, as I did these past two weeks, and I also live in the Pacific North, Northwest for high school and stuff, you'll see a lot of places and, and people, businesses who are so proud of the fact that they, um, their family has had such a piece of land or such property since the 1860s. And now my question is, how many indigenous people did you guys have to kill in order to acquire this land? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that's something they, people should be proud of. I'm just no. saying, throwing it out there. Anyway, Joe Kipp was a part native scout who assisted the soldiers during this attack, but he attempted to stop the attack when he realized at the last minute that the group being attacked was peaceful rather than hostile. After the massacre, Joe Kipp adopted one of Henry Runner's sons, who was known both as Night Gun or as Cut Bank John. 
This adopted son was the grandfather of John Kip, uh, Martin Kip's father by adoption. So do we got that straight? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to be like, that's a lot of, that's a lot of relationships. Yeah. Joe Kip adopted Heavy Runner's son. And then that adopted son was the grandfather of John Kip, who is Martin Kip's father by adoption. Okay. So, so he's got a pretty storied history of yeah, warriors, yeah. of brave yes. people. Got it. Yeah. By 1882, the bison had mostly disappeared from Blackfeet territory, and at least 600 Blackfeet died of starvation during the winter of 1882 and 1883, reducing the tribe's population to around 2,500. That's insane. I know. In 1884, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, adopted regulations to discourage or prohibit Indian customs, ceremonies, and languages with the intent to accelerate the Native Americans' assimilation into white society. Native mm -hmm. children were required to attend boarding schools where Indian languages could not be spoken. So they, basically they were breaking apart their, their culture. They were just breaking it down. Mm -hmm. And now I wonder how many people speak the Blackfoot language who are alive today, if any. Um, I was listening to the podcast, This Land, and there are, uh, they made it sound like there are only dozens of people who speak Cherokee today yeah. fluently, yeah. Um, and which is such a tragedy. And actually, it was pretty brutal and traumatic um, the, that the children were removed from their parents' homes, and uh, they would get beaten um there's a there's a, a museum in town that we went to when we first moved here to arizona um and they talked about the indian schools and the kids would get beaten when they would speak their native like native language and if they hadn't learned english um they would just not speak they would sit in class silent and i heard an interview on that podcast this land which everybody should go check out if you want to know more about um Native American history and the current plight of Native Americans uh, today, uh, it, an elder was saying that it's almost impossible for him to fully express himself because the English language is so different from his Native American language and all of them in sound and structure. And um, he, like to this day, knows what he wants to say um, in his lang native language in his head but he's not able to express it because the translation is so indirect, which wow. um, hearing him describe was ex is, was excruciating for him. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out. There. Yeah, that would be really frustrating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in 1888, left with no other choices, the Blackfeet were forced to sign the Sweet Grass Hills Treaty, an agreement that gave the Blackfeet their present reservation, plus lands in the eastern side of the present-day Glacier National Monument. But guess what? Once again, Ooh. in 1896, the U.S. government went back on their word, and they forced the tribe uh -huh. to cede the mountain lands that would become part of the national park for $1.5 That's it? That's it. That's it? Yeah. That's it? Yeah. I mean, how, how, I mean, just insidious and yeah. evil and um the colonizers just can't seem to help themselves it's it's like a habit yeah that they can't gotta get seem the drug. To get, like they've been yeah. doing they've been doing it since the beginning i i need i like that thing i need that thing i'm just gonna give i'm just gonna take thing. it okay yeah. yeah give me that thing 
Um, after World War II, the BIA allowed tribes to decide whether alcohol would be sold on their lands, and the Blackfeet decided to allow sales of alcohol on the Blackfeet Reservation. Many Blackfeet who returned to the reservation after the war had acquired drinking habits while serving in the military or working in war-related industries. From this time, alcoholism became an increasingly serious problem on the reservation. According to testimony uh, later at Kip's trial, Blackfeet and other Native Americans who leave their reservations often experience low self-esteem and lose the support of their communities. They may lack internal controls on their behavior. For this reason, indigenous people who experience problems after leaving the reservation may quickly fall apart. And I just wanted to say that um, I believe that this is still true today. Um, I had a roommate in college who was born and raised on the reservation in Washington. Um, Shout out to the Tulalip tribe. And um, she ended up leaving school for similar reasons. She just didn't wasn't feeling like herself, didn't have enough support. Um, It was hard for her family to come and visit because we were all the way in California. Um, And it was really difficult for her to be in a white space when she had not been in a space like that her entire life. And um, while she she was also very honest about life on the reservation not being easy, but it was, uh, I think, even harder for her to be away from it. Hmm. So um, now we are going to get into the killer's Martin Kipp's early life. So hit it, Beth. (laughs) 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 Martin Kipp was born on the Blackfeet Reservation in 1958. His birth mother was an alcoholic. We're not sure about his birth father, if he was an alcoholic or if he was around much, but Kip actually lived in the home of his maternal grandmother. About 12 to 14 other children lived in the two-room house, and inebriation and fighting were common. The children living there were often neglected. Then in January 1960, when Martin was almost two years old, child welfare workers removed him from his grandmother's home and placed him with John and Mildred Kip who were also members of the Blackfeet tribe. Child services in the U.S. and Canada are very quick to remove Black and brown kids from their parents' homes, especially over substance abuse issues or um, what they perceive to be neglect when it might just be like poverty or something like that. Nowadays, people realize that it is much more traumatic to remove the child from the home. And uh, I think these days people make more of an effort to keep the kids in the home while getting the parents whatever help they need for substance or income issues. Um, But it wasn't the case for uh, Martin Kipp. John Kipp was very large, over six feet and 240 to 290 pounds. He was also handsome and muscular. That's what the article said. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) John was the leader of his family and ran the family ranch on Cutbank Creek within the reservation. Because they lived on the ranch, John and Bobby were somewhat isolated from the rest of the Blackfeet community. During World War II, John served in the U.S. Marine Corps and was decorated for saving a wounded Japanese soldier by carrying him to medical aid. He was an excellent hunter, fisher, and trapper, but he was also a demanding perfectionist. Martin followed Bobby everywhere and cried if he was separated uh, from her. At first, John Kipp seemed unwilling to accept Martin into his family, referring to him as Bobby's foster kid. But after about six months, his attitude changed and he began to treat Martin as a son. 
While growing up, Martin idolized John and tried to live up to his expectations, although he was never able to really do so. I have a few perfectionists in my life, and I'm certain I fall below there. <laughs> you can sympathize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Martin and John would go hunting and fishing together, and John taught Martin to operate all the farm tractors. According to a defense expert at Kipp's later trial, John did not give Martin the freedom needed for development of internal controls, and Martin had difficulty distinguishing his own wants and values from John's wants and values. That's an interesting um, take. Yeah. John trained Martin in boxing. At this time, and boxing is one of those sports that requires a lot of discipline and stuff. Yeah. At this time, Martin was described as friendly and well-mannered, honest, and a hard worker. In high school, he was a gentle person who was shy with girls. He was a warm, loving, and respectful young man. Martin competed in cross-country, and his coach described him as then being courteous, trustworthy, and an all-around good kid to coach. In 1973, John sent Martin, who was then 15, and his cousin Billy, who was 11, with Billy's older brother to get some seed grain. The car went out of control, hit an embankment, and turned over. Billy was thrown from the car, and he died. Because John had sent the boys out, he felt responsible. After the accident, John began to drink whiskey excessively, and he suffered a stroke. Mm. When John lost control of his drinking, he became estranged from his brother Max, and his marriage to Bobby broke down. He began to physically abuse both Bobby and Martin, um, so that didn't help. He spent more time away from the ranch and became involved with another woman. <laughs> I don't know why I said it. He became aggressive and rough, and even old friends avoided him. Eventually, Bobby moved away from the ranch and divorced John, uh, who then remarried. Martin then moved to Spokane, Washington. Hey, shout out to Spokane! <laughs> That's what I <laughs> there he lived with his uncle. In 1977, he received news that John had died. After John's death, there was a dispute over ownership of the ranch between the Kipp family and John's widow. Martin was in the middle of this conflict and unprepared to deal with it. In the end, Bobby got nothing, while Martin received $13,000. Wow. Martin enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. Because of the discipline and the high standards and expectations, being in the Marines was similar to Martin's previous experience as John's son. A defense witness later testified that the percentage of American Native Americans or indigenous people who served in the military is about twice that for the population as a whole. Among the Plains tribes with a warrior tradition, combat experience is highly valued and members of these tribes tend to join elite combat units like the Marines and the Rangers. Those who join the military but do not have combat experience tend to feel shame and dissatisfaction. Uh, I must point out that it's very likely that Kip uh, experienced poor treatment and abuse from his white counterparts. I don't doubt that. Um, lots of black and brown um, men at the time, because we're talking about the 60s, uh, fought in the United States war since the very founding of this country, just thinking this is going to be the war. This is going to be the one. I'm going to join this one and they're going to finally treat me like a, a normal citizen. But when they returned, um, what? Well, they did not get to take advantage of the benefits that the white soldiers got, like things like the, the GI Bill, um, help with housing and education, etc. Um, so I, I don't doubt that that was part of Kip's and other indigenous men's experience at the time. 
Martin was considered an outstanding recruit during boot camp, but then he was assigned to a desk job in Okinawa. Martin was disappointed and unprepared for office work on a military base in a foreign country. He developed an attitude problem, stole some items, spent some time in the brig, and began to abuse alcohol, cocaine, and methamphetamine. Martin was then transferred to California. Okay, so now we're going to dive into the timeline and get into the actual true crime. So, hit it, Beth. On June 13th, 1981, a woman named June M., and they they didn't give the last name, uh, it's just June M., she met Kip at a bar on the Pacific Coast Highway in Long Beach. After sitting in his truck for a while with uh, Martin Kip, uh, Kip drove off with her against her will. She couldn't open the passenger door. The uh, the door didn't work. Mm. Kip eventually stopped and June asked to be taken back to the bar, but Kip pushed her into the back of the truck and started removing her clothes. When she screamed, Kip put a hand in her mouth and she bit his hand um, and then he began to strangle her. Kip finished removing her clothes and then raped her. Eventually her body went limp. She was unable to breathe and believed she was dying. Kip demanded oral sex. She said she would do it if Kip gave her some fresh air. But when Kip opened the door, she jumped out and ran away, eventually flagging down a motorist and reporting the incident to the police. June had severe bruises on her neck and wore a neck brace for two weeks after this incident. That's uh, messed up. Quite a bit of damage that she had to wear a neck brace for two weeks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kip then went AWOL, but was later captured in Idaho and returned to California for trial convicted of rape he was sentenced to three years in prison but only served 19 months before his release in 1983 while he was in custody in the los angeles county jail he was sexually assaulted by other inmates after his release from prison in 1983 kip continued to deteriorate he was abusing alcohol cocaine and methamphetamine so i'm just thinking about all the the, you know the things in serial the the traits and serial killers that we've seen in the past uh-huh. we've got the abandonment yep um a lot of them have had military service yeah um abuse. and a, a physical abuse mm-hmm. sexual abuse and um substance abuse yep uh so on thursday september 15th 1983 tiffany frizzell she was a white woman left home in indianola washington and traveled to long beach california Uh, to attend Brooks College. Because the dormitories at Brooks College did not open until Saturday, September 17th, that's two days later, she took a room near the college at the Ramada Inn on the PCH Pacific Coast Highway in Long Beach. On the morning of September 17th, 1983, when she was supposed to start school, the housekeeping staff at the Ramada Inn discovered Tiffany Frizzell's body face up on the bed in, in her room. The bed was neatly made and the body was on top of the sheets and the blanket, but underneath the bedspread. She was wearing a blouse without a bra and she was naked from the waist down. Around her neck was a cloth belt pulled very tight. There were no signs of forced entry into the room. Frizzell's purse, driver's license, and about $130 in cash were found in a dresser in the room. 
A damp bathing suit was hanging in the bathroom, and a map of bus routes indicated that she had used a bus to go to the beach. Today's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. It was a night like any other. We'd just finished a live show of the podcast at Madison Square Garden. It was nice <laughs> to see Megan and Harry. You know, so nice of them to come. And then we told the pilot, hey, gas up the PJ. We out of here. <laughs> Wait, gas up the PJ? Megan and Harry? <laughs> Just go with it, okay? Okay, okay. So, Wendy, we gassed up the PJ, and then what? Well, <laughs> while we were on the PJ, that's private jet for regular folks. I was wondering. We, we were up in the clouds, scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. It was incredible. And the good news is, I'm on level 393. Right on. <laughs> yes, it sounds incredible. But if mm -hmm. your head's in the clouds like Wendy, in an imaginary <laughs> private jet with Megan and Harry, or your feet are firmly planted on the ground, ground at work or in line at the grocery store. One thing is true. Best Fiends is just plain fun. Mm, it is true. Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect, so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. I'm sorry, I was just looking at this funny text from Harry. Anyway, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. With offline play, Wendy's favorite, you'll mm -hmm. never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Download your favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility, including old Whitey and me? Seriously, that is a staggering statistic yeah. that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. We need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. Good data and information about our bodies is crucial when it comes to our body autonomies, especially in the year of our Lord 2022. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com fruit, you can get $20 off your test. Also, and this is really cool, mm. if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can put those dollars towards Modern Fertility. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you want kids today, or in the future, never or are undecided. It's important to have clinically sound information about your body, which can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That's modernfertility.com fruit. Bring your prints that were not Tiffany's were found on the telephone in the room and semen was found on her body. A deputy medical examiner performed an autopsy on Frizzell's body. The cause of death was asphyxiation due to ligature strangulation. She had a deep ligature mark on her neck, petechial hemorrhages in the eyes and scalp, which were all consistent with strangulation. She had multiple bruises on her body and a small abrasion on the back of her left hand. These injuries all occurred before death, but the absence of healing indicated that they were fresh within 48 hours of death. There was also evidence of sexual assault. So then police went to the media asking for help. 
And on Monday, September 19th, 1983, a gardener working at a residence in Long Beach found a canvas bag in some bushes next to an alley. Among other things found in the bag was a book with Tiffany Frizzell's name written inside the cover and a magazine. When the gardener saw Tiffany's name, he notified police. Tiffany's fingerprints were found on the book and the magazine. Other fingerprints were also found on the book, which matched those on the phone in the hotel room. The residence where the bag was found was a half a mile from the Ramada Inn where Frizzell's body was found and close to a bus stop. Police believe that the murderer had followed Tiffany from the bus to her motel room and then knocked on the door. Because there was no evidence of forced entry, they believe that he used a ruse to get in. Then after the murder, he threw the bag in the bushes and used the bus again to make his getaway. Oh, that's so sad. That is. Um, and scary that, I, I don't know if you've ever, like, taken public transportation, but uh, yeah. it's something I've done all throughout my life. And it's, it, I never even, I, I just have my headphones in, do 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 that we do. Like, I don't even think, I don't even think about it um but somebody could follow you anywhere yeah and and the fact that she was in her motel room and he probably knocked on the door and pretended to be you know some like somebody from the hotel management or something or oh yeah something like that and she just opened Mm -hmm. the door you know thinking Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You know, oh, oh you came to fix help. fix something. Okay, come on in. You know, yeah, scary, yeah, yeah. yeah. very much so, and unfortunate for. Um, oh, very sad. She was just home. getting ready to start her life. Yeah, yeah. On November tenth, nineteen eighty three, Kip and Lavita N, last name unknown, uh, who were in an intimate relationship, were sharing a room at a motel in Coos Bay, Oregon. During the early morning hours after they had been drinking together at a bar near the motel, they began to argue. When Levita refused to have sex with Kip, he started hitting her in the head with his fists and choking her. Now, he's had boxing training. Yeah. Um, so, they probably, and he's a big dude. So, yeah. I, can, I, I can't imagine. Thinking she was about to lose consciousness, Levita told Kip she needed to go to the bathroom because she was about to vomit. Once inside the bathroom, she locked the door and climbed through the window. As she was leaving, she heard Kip kicking down the door. She ran to the manager's office, and the police came and took Kip into custody. Levita did not press charges against Kip because he told her that if she did, he would kill her and her son. That's often enough to silence most victims. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of people don't report um, crimes that are... And, and when you're a victim of a, a crime like this... I, I've never been a victim of a crime like this, but I'm just thinking if if they have the gall to do this to me here, imagine, I'm, how, how could they not find my family? How could they yeah. not, you know, inflict pain on people they that they may not even again And have. they can kill you this yeah. time, you know, the next time. Right. Yeah. Um, on December 29th, 1983, Antaya Yvette Howard, a 19-year-old black woman who everyone called Yvette, left her home in her car sometime after 10 p.m. She had recently graduated from high school where she had been a track star and was working on a or at a photography studio in December. And she was waiting to start classes at Golden West College. She had hopes of becoming a flight attendant. Her mother, Maxine Breton, said that the last thing she remembers of that night was reminding her daughter at 10 p.m. that their favorite show, Knott's Landing, had just started on TV. Maxine then went to bed. 
No one in the house saw Yvette leave that night. No one realized she was missing until the next morning. Oh, man. On uh, December 30th, a woman noticed a car, later identified as Howard's, parked in an alley in Huntington Beach. The woman telephoned the police on January 4th, 1984, because the car had not been moved and was emitting a foul odor. The police found Howard's badly decomposed body covered by a blanket in the hatchback area of the car. Her blouse was open and missing two buttons. Her bra had been rolled up, exposing her breasts. Her jeans and underpants were around her ankles, and fingerprints were found on the exterior window glass of the car's two front doors and on a beer can found on the front passenger floorboard. Wow. So the body had been there for maybe a week? Uh, let's and see. was badly decomposed the 29th of December to January 4th? Yeah, just just a few days, really. Yeah. Five, five days. And perhaps, yeah, and perhaps maybe, I mean, it's, California isn't, like, the elements aren't too, too severe, so the sun. Yeah, it's and not, maybe it's not the, that the cold. And yeah. Right. So an autopsy of Howard's body indicated that the cause of her death was asphyxiation due to strangulation. Abrasions were found on her left forehead, left eyebrow, left thigh, and lower back. Bruises were found on her left eyebrow, left cheek. So you got to think somebody striking her, beating her, basically on the left side with her. Yeah, beating her, but with their dominant hand, which is most likely a right hand. Yeah. Um, the back left side of her head, her left shoulder blade, her left thigh. Um, there was internal bleeding in her eyes, which is a phrase I have never seen before in my life. <laughs> and until that, it until now. This episode. <laughs> internal bleeding in her eyes and in her head and neck. I, I thought internal bleeding was normally like in your trunk area, right? Yeah, I don't know. Internal maybe bleeding. maybe the where we read that was uh, incorrect. I don't maybe they were talking about the petechial hemorrhage you know maybe oh, that's okay, what they maybe. meant yeah that's, that's intense yeah um the injuries were consistent with having been struck on the back of the head with a blunt object and with strangulation by pressure to the front of the neck so now we're going to get into the next part of the story which is in the investigation and the arrest so take it away beth police went to the media again asking for information a woman came forward and said that she'd seen Yvette and a man around 3 a.m. on December 30th at a restaurant in Newport Beach. A composite sketch of the man was created and broadcast by the media. At the time, Kip was in custody for a parole violation in Laguna Beach. By the way, that is such an affluent area. <laughs> um, after <laughs> I felt so uncomfortable <laughs> being there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> after seeing the composite sketch, Laguna police officers thought that Kip looked like the sketch and contacted Huntington Beach police. Huntington Beach police discovered that Kip lived in the same neighborhood as Yvette and authorities then interviewed Kip about her murder. Kip denied knowing Yvette Howard and could not explain how his fingerprints got on her car. But soon police also connected him to the murder of Tiffany Frizzell through the fingerprints left on the telephone in her room and on the book with her name written on it. Police also interviewed Kip's girlfriend at the time, who told police of some items that he showed up with, including a radio that was missing from Tiffany's hotel room. Kip had pawned it for $70 and police found it at the pawn shop. Oh, wow. Uh, 
70 so 70 dollars like in the 80s i'm assuming would be a lot, a lot of money a lot yeah more now yeah like i wonder the radio kind of... i think was probably like really nice radio at the time it was a boon box you know but yeah yeah i think it was a, a radio that also played tapes and i don't know maybe it was uh-huh. like a you know upper end deal but yeah 70 dollars yeah, that was a been. lot of money for that's a, a big chunk of change yeah yeah and her her mother was the one that knew that the radio was missing and knew what kind of radio it was and that's how it was it got identified probably because it was an expensive radio and maybe she'd Mm. given it to her as a gift for graduation or something like that you know oh i was thinking he took he stole the radio from the hotel oh no it it was was tiffany's radio it was Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it now. All yeah. Right. The ra- Thank you. The radio I'll from the hotel room probably wouldn't have been that nice. <laughs> I was going to say, that's why I was like, you just, you can't just steal radios from <laughs> hotels. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, all right. Sorry. Sorry. Now I'm back on, now I'm back on the back same on page track. as you. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. So uh, moving along in 1985, while he was still in jail, Kip married a law clerk named Linda Ann. And on April 15th, 1987, Tom Giffen, an investigator for the Orange County Sheriff, met up with Linda and Kip. Giffen was working undercover, posing as a narcotics dealer. During that meeting and other meetings and telephone conversations over the next two days, Linda Kip asked Giffen to assist her in helping Kip escape from the Orange County Jail. Giffen pretended to agree, but I wonder if he baited her um, because... I know law enforcement does this sometimes and is like, hey, do you want to buy a bunch of guns? And like the the person is like, I guess, but I have all these guns. Yeah. To I, I wasn't really thinking about guns, but uh, now yeah. that you mention it. <laughs> I guess I could use those. Sure. And so then these people get like roped in by law enforcement into these um, really serious federal cl- crimes. Um that they otherwise probably wouldn't have ever found themselves in if law enforcement hadn't sought them out and sort of planted these ideas. Right. I And I, I'm just referring to, um, there's a, a case in particular of a, of a young black kid who um, he happened to be Muslim and he happened to make friends with an undercover FBI agent. And he, the agent was like, I got these guns, you want to buy them? Or, or something like, I want to plan this terrorist attack. I I hate these people. Don't you want to? Don't you want to give really give it to America? And the guy was like, "No, not really." And then he kept pushing the idea. And then the kid was like, "I guess so. Yeah. I mean, if we're in this together." And he was a young kid too, so he bought it. And the kid ended up is in federal prison wow. because of that FBI agent. So I don't know if a crime was reported by law enforcement implanting themselves and also implanting these ideas. Yeah. I might be really offending a lot of people by saying this, but I'm just saying, I don't know if I buy that she brought it up completely herself. I don't know. Yeah. Hard to say. Hard to say. But on April 16th, Linda discussed the escape plan with Giffen during a telephone conversation and Linda agreed to pay Giffen a thousand dollars for his help with $500 in advance and the rest after the escape. As Linda described it to Giffen, the plan called for Giffen to accompany Linda Kipp's son to the jail. And, and her son was like 16. 
Oh, boy. From a public lobby, they would then enter a public restroom. In that restroom, Giffen would remove the ceiling grate covering the air conditioning duct and assist Linda Kipp's son to climb into the duct. The son would then somehow make his way to Kipp through the ducts and guide him back to the public restroom. Giffen would wait in the restroom until Linda Kipp's son returned with Kipp. Which sounds like a pretty dubious plan. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. really? You think that's going to work? <laughs> and, well, it's good to Danamora work. <laughs> true, but they worked on that for like a year. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true, too. <laughs> then the three of them, Kip Giffen and Linda Kip's son, would leave the restroom and walk out of the jail. On April 17th, Linda Kipp gave Giffen $500 in cash, and the next day Linda Kipp was arrested for her role in the planned escape. Mm, man. Linda Ann Kipp, 37, was granted a year's probation after promising to start a new life away from her husband, convicted murder Martin James Kipp. She pleaded guilty to charges of conspiring to assist in an escape, and she was ordered by a judge never to see her husband again. But she was a lawyer, right? So I wonder if she was, like, disbarred or any of that other stuff. She wasn't a lawyer. Right? She was a paralegal. Oh, okay. 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 Well, uh, now we're going to dive into the trial. So what do you got for us, Beth? During the trial, prosecution introduced in evidence a 16-page letter that Kip wrote and sent to his wife, Linda, while they were both in custody in the Orange County Jail. In this letter, Kip admitted to raping and killing Tiffany Frizzell. He also wrote that he had killed Yvette Howard with a dim Mac technique. Apparently in martial arts, dim Mac literally means death touch and refers to striking mm. blows to certain pressure points on the body, resulting in unconsciousness or death. <laughs> um, so that wasn't necessary, but I was just thinking... Okay, so I was under the impression that in some states, a husband and wife couldn't, like, testify against each other. But they didn't. Um, but I'm just, they didn't testify. But I I, I, I guess it, it seems like it's inappropriate to use um, contact or phone conversations with your spouse mm -hmm. against each other. But when they were both in custody, so I can, to I can see how that's justifiable. But what if he was in custody and she was not? I don't, I don't know. know. Anyway, it doesn't yeah, matter. I don't know. I don't but know the ins they and were both that. in custody, so I see why that is allowed in law in the law's eyes. So Martin Kipp was tried first for the murder of Yvette Howard, and he was convicted on August 14, 1987, of first degree murder. And on September 17, 1987, he was sentenced to death. In a second trial, Kip was convicted of Tiffany Frizzell's murder on December 15th, 1988. So um, both of his murder victims got justice, which I just think is really dope, including the black girl. Yeah, so yeah. Kip was given a second death sentence on January 30th, 1989. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. In 2016, Kip attempted to overturn his conviction using a defense often termed the preppy killer defense after Robert Chambers, a man who killed a woman in what he claimed was an autoerotic accident. Kip said he met Frizzell on a city bus in Long Beach, California, and he claimed that she was killed during sex play when he accidentally choked her to death. And um, this uh, hearing, like his, his case went, uh, I don't know if it was the Supreme 
Supreme Court in California, but um, I saw his lawyers argue this in case. It's on YouTube. Oh, wow. Or argue argue this case in court. And it was the only thing I could find about this case um, on the internet, to be honest with you. And um, it was really boring, and I fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) And Yvette Howard's murder, Kip claimed that she pulled a small Derringer pistol on him during a fight in her car after they had sex, and then he choked her, but that it was an accident. Kip's attempt to overturn his conviction was denied, and he is currently housed in San Quentin. Shout out to um, San Quentin, because they are the prison where ear hustle which is a dope ass podcast that we are and our fruit loops today's episode is brought to you by best fiends it was a night like any other we just finished a live show of the podcast at madison square garden it was (laughs) nice to see megan and harry you know so nice of them to come then we told the pilot hey gas up the pj we out of (laughs) here wait gas up the pj megan and harry Just go with it, okay? Okay, okay. So, Wendy, we gassed up the PJ, and then what? Well, <laughs> while we were on the PJ, that's private jet for regular folks. I was wondering. <laughs> we were up in the clouds, scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. It was incredible. And the good news is, I'm on level 393. Right on. <laughs> yes, it sounds incredible. But if mm-hmm. your head's in the clouds like Wendy, in an imaginary <laughs> private jet with Megan and Harry, or your feet are firmly planted on the ground, ground at work or in line at the grocery store. One thing is true. Best Fiends is just plain fun. Mm, it is true. Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect, so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. I'm sorry, I was just looking at this funny text from Harry. Anyway, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. With offline play, Wendy's favorite, you'll mm-hmm. never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection download your favorite getaway best fiends for free today on the app store or google play you'll even get five dollars worth of in-game rewards when you reach level five that's friends without the r best fiends pod squad love about life in prison and now that erlon is out life outside of prison so i don't know if they've ever gotten to kip as an interviewee Hmm. but maybe it's on the docket yeah we'll have to Um, check it out yeah yeah So now we're going to get into what we think made the killer snap and um, what are our takeaways from the story. So what do you got, Beth? So according to the psychologist who testified as a defense expert, Kip's neglect as a child caused him to view the world as an insecure and threatening place. And he developed a basic distrust and fear of people and a great sensitivity to rejection or abandonment. The same psychologist also said that Kip basically wasn't able to form a sense of self or internal controls because of his adoptive father's stern discipline. And I I do think Mm -hmm. that parents who are very authoritarian or over-controlling can cause kids to not be able to develop a strong sense of self or learn from their consequences. They're so controlled Mm -hmm. that they don't really have any consequences because they're not allowed to explore. Consequences from a parent Mm -hmm. only work up to a certain age. And then um, we have to learn for ourselves. Um, If you don't have any external consequences, then you don't, you just don't learn. 
Um, so that's probably mm-hmm. part of it. And the cultural stuff that we were talking about earlier is probably part of it, but it doesn't really explain all of it. Um, I, I don't really know what made him snap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. That's my snap. answer. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I agree with everything you said. I'm trying to think if I have anything to add. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I really do feel bad for the kid that Kip was um, because it's 100 percent relevant to his view of the world, his behavior and his crimes. Right. Context, um, his environment shaped how he became as an adult. And I'd also like to point out that people listening to this show probably already know this, but rape is a crime about power it's not just about sex and i think given how unstable his childhood was and uh his strict father or adoptive father his military career um didn't pan out the way he wanted it to be or or the way he'd hoped and he probably had a desire for control and power in some way which he lacked throughout his life you know in, in high school it sounded like things were pretty good for him um and you know he may have been a little bit shy but you know, you add to it that liquor and doing drugs and um, it just made escalating to rape and then murder m- maybe more seamless. Um, you know, it, it was almost like it was inevitable. Yeah. And I, I was know, thinking I about um, his his uh, adoptive father, John, and how strict uh-huh. he was and what a perfectionist he was. And then he just fell apart. And that had to be right. really just confusing to to mm-hmm. to martin kip uh like what what mm-hmm. the hell his whole you know his rock just kind of right fell to pieces and then crumbled he didn't know yeah. what to do with himself yeah i think i think that's, that's and and the true. military career didn't pan out and he, he probably felt lost and i forgot to mention that he was sexually assaulted too right and, and so he was i wonder what that does yeah. to a man Right. And um, and I also wanted to mention that sometimes people um like a, a rapist goes to prison and then they get raped in prison and people are like, Yeah, how do you like it? It's like I, I don't feel I don't mm-hmm. feel like that, you know, it's never good. <laughs> I'm not real no, happy no, I'm not I mean, happy about that. Anytime anybody violates your personhood or your your body or your violates any sort of any part of your space is just it's it's just dramatic in general and so i'm sure he wasn't the same after that yeah i'm sure that had something yeah criminal or not even even people i don't know if i don't necessarily believe that people even though they may have committed a crime deserve to get raped i was listening to the breakfast club or something and um uh some somebody did something really horrible and all the callers on the radio station were like yeah that dude deserves to get locked up and get get the shit raped out of him and i don't know if that does anybody any good no and it and makes me that's, sick that's all it makes me sick when yeah, people I say stuff like that yeah i just i don't i don't think that continuing to perpetuate um violence or hurt helps helps in any way i mean i know i know there's this desire to want to want people revenge who hurt yeah. other people to suffer yeah i just i just have a hard time with it yeah. that's just me me too. so anyway I agree. <laughs> you know what let us know what you think yeah. we got a whole discussion going so you know just get at us 
follow hashtag fruit tips pod discussion or let us know what you think in the in the, in the discussion group on facebook come on get at us So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you'll excuse me, if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So it looks like you've got a whole heap of tips. So tell us, Beth, what have you got? Well, because Tiffany was killed while she was staying at a hotel, I just wanted to give give you guys some tips for when you're traveling. So I'm just going to read them out. Okay. So don't draw attention to yourself. Try to blend in as much as you can. Be discreet when looking at maps. Now, we have phones, so we don't have to pull out the big map. But uh, if, if you do, be discreet. Right. And uh, you're looking mm-hmm. on your phone. You can pretend you're texting while you're actually Google mapping. <laughs> mm-hmm. keep, yes, your, yeah. keep your friends and family updated and check in with them regularly. Even your mm-hmm. annoying mom mm-hmm. who... You think just won't stay out of your damn business. Maybe just let her know where you are so she doesn't have to worry. I say that as a mom. Sure, of course. Of course. In your hotel room, lock and deadbolt the door and keep your windows shut. And you can buy a door jammer, which I didn't know that you could, but it's a portable device that slips under the door to add another layer of protection. Uh, then when they try to open the door, it's Ooh. jammed and they can't do it. I'm going to have to use that for my kids. Yeah. Oh. So they won't interrupt me while I'm Hey, podcast. that's a good idea. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> Don't let any strangers into your room, even if they say they work for the hotel. You can always call the front desk. If somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, I'm here to fix the whatever, you can call the front desk Mm -hmm. and check to see whether someone was ordered by hotel staff to come to your room. Be aware Mm -hmm. of your surroundings. Keep an eye on your personal belongings at all times and use good judgment when talking to strangers. For some people, not me, part of the fun of traveling is meeting new people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not me i'm like don't oh, talk yeah. to me <laughs> <laughs> but if someone near you is acting suspiciously or if you feel uncomfortable for any reason get the heck out of there yeah yeah and um that i think that deadbolt is key like we were on the road um and we were do- like booking hotel hotel rooms like the night of, right um because we wanted to see how far we could drive and then once we were just poop and then we'd book a hotel in that city. Yep. And, you know, we checked the reviews on some of the hotels. Like some hotels in these teeny tiny towns don't have deadbolts. We oh, would wow. not stay at a hotel with no deadbolt. You know what I mean? So, yeah, um, yeah you do got to sort of make sure that the door um, and the locks are in order. 
um, and the blinds work. Yeah. If you're going to stay there and, and feel a sense of safety. Yeah. And so. bring your door jammer. Bring the damn door jammer. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that. I, I'm going to have, we're, we're going to have to um, find out how much one of those costs on Amazon because yeah. I really want to get one like yesterday. <laughs> um, so <laughs> now we're going to get into some serial killer and true crime news. Um, and I just wanted to, I, by now we've all heard about this tragic story in the Bay Area um, in which three people were killed with an AK-47 by a 19-year-old white guy um, at a fucking family food festival in Gilroy. Um, one of the victims was a six-year-old Latinx boy um, from my hometown of San Jose, California. Um, the festival was again in Gilroy and police say that three victims and one suspect are dead after multiple people were shot in the Gilroy festival on a Sunday. Um, the boy and his mom and his grandma were shot, but the boy is the one who succumbed to his injuries. The, the police actually arrived within one minute of being called, oh which gosh, was good. Wow. But I think in, during the shooting, I heard on the news, the report that I'm reading for the podcast, um, is, from yesterday but when i saw the news today that i understand that the man was able to reload his gun oh. in between the beginning of the shooting and when the police finally shot him dead an abc affiliate uh, identified the killer as a man named 19 year old santino william legan um according to police the gun he bought was purchased legally in nevada just three weeks ago on july 9th ATF and police are searching a home belonging to his father in Churchill Place in Gilroy. Um, the home is about a mile away from Christmas Hill Park, where the, the festival took place. And I also learned that uh, th for this man to try to get into the festival where people were just enjoying themselves, it was a garlic festival. So people were enjoying delicious food, music, vendors, art, family, friends, outdoors in the beautiful Bay Area. and um, to get into the festival, this man actually cut um, the chain link fence uh, and and crawled through the fence in order mm. to enter the festival. So um, he obviously didn't go in through the whatever the front, entrances yeah. they had, whatever entrances they had, where there might have been, you know, gun detectors and metal detectors right. and things like that. So anyway, very tragic story. Yeah. Um, you all probably have heard of it by now, but I just wanted to um, shout it out on Christmas because I feel really badly for um, the community of Gilroy, which is a pretty diverse city, the Bay Area in general is very diverse, even though now it's a little segregated and 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 whatnot. But there's there's uh, it's a beautiful community, yeah. and um, it's just really sad for this little boy's family. Yeah, so real sad. So now we're gonna get into the shout out section of our show, where we shout out any content by people of color, LGBTQ women, or any true crime goodies. Um, well, I just wanted to say since we were talking about a Native American perp today. Um, that I wanted to, we, we did do a, a pretty good, healthy chunk about uh, Native American history, but um, there's, the history is so there's, vast. It is. Um, and that, that's only, in, we only did a history on the Blackfeet and, and it was actually very truncated and there's like mm -hmm. so many tribes, so many, and it's mm -hmm. all different. So, so many tribes. Yeah. And, but the, but the history of all of them is, um, I think important to learn if you're a true patriot oh anyway, yeah because um let's say that they were the first they were the first americans and um 
what their experience is. Maybe they vary a little bit from tribe to tribe, but it overall is, um, I don't think fair. Right. Uh, one is one is only one adjective I can come up with. And I, I don't, I don't want to um, have the episode go too long, but I do want everybody to check out the podcast called this land. And it is about um, the Cherokee lands in Oklahoma. And the, the whole uh, podcast was started because the Supreme court was going to hear a case about this Cherokee land that belongs to these Cherokee people that the U S government is like, no, we, we, we took it over and during those unfair treaties. So just give it back to us and shut up Cherokee. Oh my God. And um, the Supreme court was supposed to make a decision like two weeks, two or three weeks ago uh, before they like ended, ended their um, term or their, like session yeah uh but they were like "Ooh, this is pretty messy and we can't make a decision now so it was really odd because i don't think they've done anything like that before at least in a while and um so when they come back they're going to get some more information and make a decision but all these cherokee people are like come on it's so obvious just give us our land anyway the the whole the whole it's it's I don't know how many episodes, but they get into the history, the the beginnings of the tribe, the history, the, the the like, the very 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 old history, and then all of a sudden these colonizers come in and and the devastation that they created and um everything that's happened since then, and it's really fascinating. It's also infuriating and heartbreaking. So check out this land wherever you get your podcasts. Infuriating and heartbreaking. Where do I sign up? <laughs> Oh, I know it's my favorite, but I do tell, I, I do, I must say American history is not pretty. No, it's not. And the people who say, you know, go back to where you came from or you don't belong here. You don't like it. Just leave. Well, especially for indigenous people, we've been here. So where, where are we supposed to go? Mother yeah, yeah. Or, um, to, uh, black people where it went, nine or the person who's occupying the white house says just go back to where you came from i can't tell you how many times i've heard that throughout my life and um you're from here where am i supposed to- <laughs> i'm from here yeah, i was I'll born, I was born I here from. and i also, came from here <laughs> yeah I, I came from here and my ancestors were brought here against yeah, their will like yeah, fuck uh, you, motherfucker. sorry we're <laughs> yeah it's just it's it's just such an awful like attitude like just know your history and you would know that that is a terrible unwarranted thing to say uh, totally yeah uh so let's let's all listen and be better and be like Beth. anyway (laughs) 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 so where can the people find us Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. 
Yes, that's all true and correct. Um, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast? killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows i want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast carol costello presents blind rage in 1984 a woman named phyllis cottle was abducted in broad daylight tortured and left to die in a burning car in akron ohio at the time i was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story since then i've reported every kind of crime imaginable I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.